0: Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, which is the leading global organisation defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. We have a website, womensdeclaration.com, where you'll find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which has been signed by 37,287 people from 160 countries, and is supported by 518 organizations we have volunteer activists many volunteer activists and also country contacts so for many countries we have somebody uh liaising and doing work nationally in their country and you can find that on our website womensdeclaration.com do join us and you can it's a women-only organization so you can join us by volunteering or donating or becoming a member and um, help with our work. And you can do that by the website or info at womensdeclaration.com. We also have published a book which is called Women's Rights, Gender Wrongs, the The Global Impact of Gender Identity Ideology. And it's edited by Kath Aiken and Sally Wainwright and it's available widely in via the sort of online stores and also in real life from stores. So today, I'm really pleased to say that we have three speakers. They are Carolyn Kost, who is going to talk. She's from the USA. She's going to talk about women's studies to gender studies. And we also, I'm really pleased to say, have Jessica Fenn, who is from Norway and, or her, her, the country we're saying is from Norway, and she's going to tell us why she signed the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, and the journey in signing the Declaration, why she's a feminist, and why the Declaration is so important. Jessica is from Norway, and she is a trade unionist, um, a leftist and a feminist moved to Oslo from London 9 years ago and is part of WDI Norway and Jessica Jessica Fenn is going to um to explain why she signed the declaration on women's sex-based rights so thank you so much for coming Jessica and over to you
1: thanks for having me um i'm actually originally from London and i live in Norway um i think just before i start i'm i'm going to um a bit of the important stuff about the declaration, and then I'm going to tell a sort of personal story about why it this issue affects me so much. Um, so so there's some personal stuff which I was a bit nervous about, but um I think it's really important. Um uh the sticker was we've also got in Oslo, so that was really fun. And um just using our voices, um, I've been interviewed, I've been reported in my job twice. I've been interviewed by um lawyers. Um, And part of my job is um, to, I work for a trade union, and part of my job is to um, promote equality uh, in the workplace, um, and that includes now LGBTQI+, Um, And it seems to be so limited to um, one way of thinking and the assumption that everybody um, agrees with gender ideology. There's no space for any other voice. Um, So um, it it really does affect um, us all, you know, Um, fear of losing your job, fear of not being able to do your job properly. So, um, yeah. And I've just seen a comment about being in trade unions um, and that is quite shocking. Um, So why did I sign the declaration? I mean, to protect the rights of women and girls, um, that my mum, my aunties, my grandma, and all the women before us have fought so hard to put in place in the beginning. This feels like, you know, we're taking a stand to stop them being reversed. Um, uh, You know, to to give women and girls the right to live uh, free from fear, from violence, from sexual violence, To have the opportunity to earn your own money, to be self-sufficient, to go to work, to get an education. These are all the basic things that, um, you know, my grandma couldn't do, that women still around the world cannot do. Um, It doesn't feel um, extreme and it doesn't feel outrageous to say that, yeah, women and men are different, but actually doesn't mean that we should be second class uh, citizens. Um, And it's because of the biological fact that women can grow and have babies that society's decided that that should be our main focus in life, our main responsibility, and has given men the opportunity to be the dominant sex. Um, So I feel like the declaration in itself is an attempt to balance that imbalance that is there and, and to right the wrong that is sexism. Um, throughout the world, which is you know, far too prevalent. um I live in Norway, and it's relatively safe compared to where I grew up in East London. Um, and I know that there's women in lots of countries where it is not safe. Uh, I'm not saying it's 100 percent safe, but even in a safe country like Norway, there is still sexism and the threat of violence for women. Um, so yeah, I'm a trade unionist, I'm a feminist, I'm a socialist. Uh, I'm not a crazy far right nutter, as I've been accused of being. I'm not a racist. I'm not, you know, uh, uh, a Nazi. Uh, I grew up in East London. My dad was a dock worker uh, and and a political activist. My mum was a psychologist. She was the daughter of an Irish immigrant, uh, the first one in her family to go to university. Um, one of the first people or generations in England to have access to family planning, to university, which was free, and that enabled her to become a professional, a psychologist. Um, So I grew up around in a politically active family. Um, I grew up with four brothers. I'm right in the middle, two younger and two older. And I just assumed that we'd be the same. Um, In my family, I was treated the same. I wore my brother's clothes. I cut my hair short. I did exactly what they did. For my fourth birthday, um, I got given a pickup truck. Um, So it was all normal. But I kind of realised quite early on that society did not um, expect the same things of me than it it did of my brothers. Um, So society expects different things from boys and girls and from men and women, I realised that being a girl, I was expected to be quiet and clean and pretty, Um, and a lot of the toys we were given were to do with cleaning and cooking and being a mother, none of which I was particularly interested in. Um, And boys were dirty, allowed to play outside, fight, um, be loud, you know, be violent. That was just so there being boys, that kind of stuff. And I remember, I think I was about seven, Uh, maybe six or seven saying to my mum I want to be a boy I I want you know cut all my hair off I I want to be a boy and I realised what I was really saying is I don't want to be restrained by society's expectations um, on women because they're limiting and they're stopping me being who I who I want to be Um, and I think that's definitely something that's affected me in this debate because I think if I was the person, the girl I was then, now, I'd be told that I'm not a girl. Um, and because of my behaviour and the clothes that I wear, I'm not a girl. Um, for I, don't, I was going to say unfortunately, but, um, you know, this is not the reality because soon enough I got my period <laughs> um, and I started to get sexual attention from grown men. Um, and boys, and the fear of violence and sexual violence, especially, became real um, when 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 I was about eight years old. Me and my friend were playing in the street, and we saw a man in the car in a car who we thought was having an epileptic fit, um, and so we went over to see if we could help. And he wasn't having an epileptic fit; he was masturbating. Um, so that was when I was eight. When I was 10, I was sexually assaulted on the London Underground every day for four consecutive days by the same man. And, I mean, I was a very small 10-year-old. I was a child. um, And in the end, we had to get the police involved. So, you know, my brothers did not experience this. This is what women and girls experience. Um, When I was 19, there, there was a group of six, me and my friends, and we discussed this we discussed the the reality of sexual violence against women and all of us except one person in the room had experienced some kind of sexual violence by men some really serious some by their own family members and so so uh, you know I've, I've grown up um and learned from an early age that it is as joe jackson said different for girls <laughs> yeah and um it made me acutely aware of what living as a woman, as some people now say, is like. and There's no escape. It didn't matter that I looked like a boy or I behaved like a boy, as I was always being told. That wasn't going to stop me from being targeted by men uh, for for sexual violence and all that goes with that. Um, Yeah, and I still had my periods, which were agonising. Nobody seemed to care about that. I was just told to run around the playground an extra time. The fact that you spend two uh, weeks of your life every month in pain and, yeah, with mad emotional feelings seems to just be, for half the population, expected that we put up with it. Um, and then, of course, I have started to be active in my trade union. Um, and eventually started working for trade unions and expected that that would be a safer place to work. Unfortunately, it's still a very male-dominated um, area to work in. And for some reason, I suppose the industrial nature of most of the trade unions when they started me- meant, in, especially in the UK, that they were dominated by men. Um, even though I worked in the public sector, which was which was seventy percent women. The leader was still a man, and um, sexism was everywhere. You know, people talking over you, being introduced as this lovely young lady, um, being patronised, being ignored, being left out of conversations, and so on. Um, so um, I've worked for trade unions since two thousand and four. Um, I started to sort of realise about this transgender stuff that men were saying that they were suddenly women. And I didn't really understand. Um, And then I started my menopause. And I thought, (laughs) this is another thing that women go through that no one seems to care about. There was no information about what was what was going to happen to me, to my body. I had panic attacks, I had physical symptoms, and everybody just kind of seemed to say, oh, well, you're old now. You might lose your sex drive, you might be in pain, you might have anxiety. That's what happens to women. So I got really involved in researching that. And then I realised that, um, yeah, there were men saying that they were women, And I just at first was really confused and I suppose like a lot of us was kind of sympathetic to the idea because I've been um, as a young person in the club scene, uh, you know, about drag queens and gay men and they're very effeminate. And okay, it's not really I don't think I really realised the impact of what was happening. Um, and then I remember going out with my cousin in Canal Street in Manchester, which is the big, um, gay club scene and how sexist it was and being told by some drag queen that the women's toilets were troughs and what the fuck was I doing in a, in a club? Um, so it kind of spun a little bit for me. Um, and then obviously I started to dig into it because when I'm interested in something, I'll, I'll research it. Um discovered Magdalene Burns, um, and then discovered all these weird men who were insisting that they were women, which was very strange. But then I realised that they were talking for us. They were taking women's um, women's officers' roles and taking prizes for being the best woman and speaking on our behalf. I mean, now there's men who say that they're Pregnant and have periods and have fetishes about tampons. I mean, it's just so bizarre. Um, but I realized then that there is a there was a wider impact. It's not just how we feel, but but men were becoming spokespeople for, for women. And so I realized that um, this is actually an important issue. And like I said in the beginning, all the rights that women have fought for along the way uh, are in danger of being um, reversed. And then, so I started asking questions and trying to discuss it with people. And as I said, I come from a political left-wing family. I thought it would be fine Um, until I was told I'm a transphobe. I'm basically a racist. um, And I've I've been shunned by some family members for years. One of my family members, a man, says that he's now a lesbian. And I'm expected to agree with that. (laughs) Which I don't, because it's not true. Um, but the the sort of I, like Fistle talked about it, the silence was just deafening. The fact that I couldn't have a debate about this, I could discuss any other political issue apart from this, was just I I, I mean, it just left me really, really confused. And then we we're asked to celebrate men dressing up as women and how gorgeous they are. And I just felt like I when I was at school, we had a campaign. Um so that we could wear trousers. Because in England, we have to wear a uniform to school and we had to wear a skirt, which in the middle of winter is cold. And also I felt left us a target, as I said, for for sexual harassment, which we won. So we were able to wear trousers. And I know that 100 years ago, (laughs) women fought for the right to wear trousers nobody gave us a prize for being the best man you know like we've done the work okay boys if you want to wear a skirt you do the work that's your campaign don't expect me to fight for you or to say that you're a woman so I got more and more kind of angry really um and then I found all these wonderful women who also agreed with me, and like we said right at the beginning, it's so important because I then moved to to Norway and I thought most people in England probably feel like this, that Norway's the most equal place in the world, everybody gets on, there's no sexism, etc. But I found out that it's even worse because in Norway, you can change your sex online. So you just go online, you type in that you want to change your sex, you get a new national insurance number and you're legally um, the opposite sex. And there was a case um, that happened quite early on when I arrived. There was a woman woman in in a, a gym getting dressed and a man, a naked man with his penis out. So she told him to leave the women's changing rooms. And he said, no, I'm a woman. So she went upstairs and spoke to the uh, staff in the gym and they came downstairs and said, you have to leave because you're a man. And he took out his passport and he said, I'm not a man, I'm a woman. So legally in Norway, he is a woman. Um, That man then took the woman who reported him to court uh, for discrimination and hate crime. Um, The judge in that um, case was kind of sensible Uh, but also annoyingly didn't make a decision and said, um, for all intents and purposes, you look like a man, so you can understand her genuine mistake. But he didn't say, um, you're not a woman. Um, So then I um, got a bit scared, actually, because it felt a bit like Handmaid's Tale. Like, there's all these men. And then I realised how angry they are as well. Big strapping men, like, like uh, Fissle was saying, with their really aggressive language and stickers. And we had stickers um, put over our stickers that say kill turfs and really graphic pictures of women getting stabbed, you know. Um, And then I found the Women's Declaration International and Christina Ellingson and Tonya Yevion and a bunch of other just amazing brave strong women and i thought right yeah this is it you know this is where i am so um i got active with them um christina lost her job tonya is a singer songwriter as well all. and she's written a song um and the, the um uh, chorus is we are women with vaginas and we're tough and we're strong blah 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 she got banned from singing that song so I was just like, what? We're not allowed to say we're women with vaginas. Um, so I thought, yeah, I'm on their team. Um, so and also I looked at the declaration and I just thought, like, this is this is not extreme. I don't understand why this is controversial. But the Women's Declaration International in Norway is the only feminist organization that supports sex-based rights. Every single, even the most radical of the feminist groups in Norway. Uh, have allowed trans women into them the 8th of march committee so this is the group that organizes international women's day demonstration and gathering changed their rules so that anyone identifying as a woman can vote Um, we had a meeting during covid where um, we put forward some motions and then during the break well loads of people put um, kill turfs and transphobe flags as their backgrounds. Um, I took photos of them and reported them and was told that I'd started the fight basically um and that's and there were just loads of men there. Christine later told me that they're pimps, some of them because they are um they want to change the law in Norway. It's illegal to buy sex in Norway. It's legal to sell sex. So in an attempt to, to protect women who find themselves in that situation, and this is a group of uh, men who want to change the law so that it is legal to buy sex, so to protect men who buy sex. I mean, these are this is the kind of people, but yeah, WDI is the only group in Norway who believes that women are women and will fight for us. Um, so that's basically it um I think WDI is fantastic and I'm really happy that I've met you all and coming to some of these question times is brilliant I love reading all the comments um yeah I mean the last thing that happened is somebody reported me to my uh job uh and said that I was yeah hateful bigger racist and Nazi because of things I'd liked on Facebook so I was interviewed for two and a half hours and they asked me questions like do you think um Women uh, men can give birth. Do you think a lesbian can have a penis? And I just said, Do you think a lesbian can have a penis? Yeah. So it's absolutely insane. And they are trying to scare us, and it is scary, you know. I don't want to lose my job. I've got I need to live, I need to eat and pay my rent, you know. So it is scary, but um, every time I come on a uh, feminist question time or go to a conference or meet other women, I feel really encouraged. Um, And I hope that I encourage some other women as well. Let's keep it up.
0: Right. So we're going to go to our next speaker. So Carolyn is a former professor of women's studies, an empiricist, an ardent opponent of synthetic sexual identity, gender identity, ideology, and the negation of empirical objective truth. And uh, Carolyn's from the USA. And the title of your talk, Carolyn, is Women's Studies to Gender Studies.
2: So uh, the reason that this is titled um, From the Real World to the Land of Make-Believe in the USA will become clear as uh, we go through this journey uh, to understand how women's studies came to, as I say, incubate the matricidal embryo, right? We're, we're, we're killing ourselves and um, we have a hand in our own destruction. and you you've been hearing that all all the the day here. Um, every every Saturday that I tune in, we hear the same thing, right? Women are colluding in our own destruction. In the Declaration of Sentiments uh, in 1848, the Seneca Falls Convention in New York was, um, when, um, suffragettes, uh, the women who wanted to write, uh, earn the right to vote for women in the United States, um, we, um, we talked about, we gathered together and we talked about <clears throat> what led us to this point and how we were going to get the right to vote. Um, now, as you can see from this slide, the domination Uh, that women experience would not be possible if it were not for the active collusion of women and this is how we got from women's studies which was once related to our biological sex that now is a chief proponent of gender theory and there, there are three reasons for this the first is a preference for the emotional and theoretical over the empirical, right? The, over the scientific method, over what we know to be true from science, that that women produce uh, large gametes, that we have XX chromosomes in every cell of our body. These are immutable facts. And uh, so that's the first one. The second one is a commitment to misguided inclusivity. So, right, we want to be, we want to be inclusive of everyone. We want, we have, we're, we're compassionate. So we want to make sure that we everyone feels good. And then thirdly, postmodernism. And postmodernism, we'll talk about a little bit later on. And this is how we got from women's studies to gender studies, and it's not just academic but because it escaped from the university as things tend to do, and it, it like, a, like a virus that escapes from a lab and continues to shape society's perspectives about the very existence of biological sex. In 1949, Margaret Mead, uh, an American anthropologist, endeavored to study sex roles across various cultures, to determine whether masculine and feminine were based entirely on cultural conditioning. And her book in 1949, Male and Female, concluded that certain differences in behavior were determined by primary sex differences like females roles in childbearing and nursing and men's size and upper body strength. And, and this is really important, in societies where the differentiation of sex roles breaks down or becomes unbalanced, the social fabric is weakened. Also, the charts that are across cultures, which um, which tasks are done more often by females and which do- more often by males and, and that kind of thing. Anyway, whatever tasks are performed by men, hold higher prestige in most societies in order, we imagine, to compensate for women's reproductive contributions. And this is what feminists came to later call Venus envy. The impact and influence of Mead's work in the United States cannot be overstated. Valerie Saving is probably someone of whom you have not heard. However, her her article, The Human Situation, A Feminine View, is available on PDF for free on the internet. And she was also very influential. Um, Karl Marx had said, the criticism of religion is the main complete. It is the beginning of all criticism. And that's what she did. She was a theologian. Um, this is a foundational critique of patriarchal religion, and it started with the um, the understanding that one of man's strongest temptations is to identify his own limited perspective with universal truth. And and this is this is the part that really captivated me. In in a patriarchal society the male concerns himself with pride will to power assertion of the ego and power and prestige by reducing those others to the status of mere objects which can then be treated as appendages of the self and manipulated accordingly those are her words okay So when you look at what Judeo-Christian tradition considers sinful, that's what they are, right? Will to power, pride, assertion of ego, power. But she says the female, in contrast, tends not toward the assertion of the self, but the underdevelopment or negation of the self, characterized by diffuseness, a lack of organizing center or focus, dependence on others for one's own self-definition, tolerance at the expense of standards of excellence, and the inability to respect the boundaries of privacy, sentimentality, that's important, that's really important, and the mistrust of reason. And those... Male and female proclivities contributed in large measure to the transformation of women's studies. Betty Friedan, 1963, The Feminine Mystique. The criticism of this, this book is important for so many reasons, but one of the the main criticism of the book focused on issues of white middle-class heterosexual women. And that raised feminist consciousness. And we realized, oh, wow, we need to be much more inclusive, diverse, um, equitable, et cetera. So rightfully, we elevated the voices of of those who are not white, who are not heterosexual, who are not able-bodied, who are not in the middle class, who are not educated. But in the 2000s, Inclusion became a Trojan horse, and it permitted males to storm the gates and literally and literally and figuratively invade women's spaces and experiences. Women's studies started as an attempt to understand the female experience. The first women's studies program in the USA was in 1970 in San Diego State. Um, The definition I'm working with appears on the screen, adult human female, female being the sex that typically that gives birth, that typically has XX chromosomes in every cell and that produces large gametes. Why did we have this? So we wanted to understand, to challenge, first of all, the, the typical university curriculum that assumed and upheld male experience as normative. It was supposed to, it was intended to draw from and apply methodologies of humanities, medicine and natural science to the female experience. So informed by Karl Marx's thesis that the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways, the point however, is to change it The goal of women's studies in 1970 was not merely understanding and analyzing women's experience, history, exploitation, and oppression, uh, labor, issues related to fertility and sexuality, family, work, and society, but to raise consciousness of power structures, criticize the status quo, effect social change, and rouse activism. So of course, when you're a university student, this is all very heady stuff. And students were animated by regarding themselves as what we might now term woke, enlightened, and more aware of of, than others of new ways of thinking, new vocabulary, new categories, and new interpretations. Now, this was facilitated greatly by the Um, disaggregation of data. So now they were collecting more data about women and men. And so we were able to to identify discrimination. We were able to ensure equitable distribution of resources, advance research agendas and inform policy to promote equality and reduce disparities. And of course, all of that with the trans agenda is up in the air because if we don't, if we can't collect that data accurately anymore, then we won't have those things, and that's what we see being eroded. Okay. Um, so crucial statistics are rapidly being eroded by permitting individuals uh, to opt out of sex identification, identify their sex as they wish, and even retroactively alter birth certificates. In 2021, in August, the American Medical Association recommended removing the category of sex, in quotation marks, typically based solely on an external evaluation on birth certificates, in order to encourage the physician's non judgmental recognition of patients' gender identities. The US Department of State now permits X for sex on passports. And this may well herald uh, at some point soon, the end of the ability to have any useful data on women's advancement and need um, of development. Okay, so postmodernism has really um, affected the university a great deal. It came from Foucault, Derrida, Kristeva, um, certainly the French postmodernists, um, and there, if you want to read more about postmodernism in the university setting and how it has escaped the, to larger society, I highly recommend cynical theories by Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. So it demands that objective knowledge be regarded as unobtainable. We cannot know for sure that anything is true. Because it says all knowledge is culturally constructed. So that means science, empirical facts through the scientific method, reason, and logic all become regarded as tools of the power structure, which is always oppressive and evil in postmodernism. Okay. So that means that, you know, the scientific method is our best way. Of coming to peace, because if we could all agree that the on the scientific method of proving something and having it be repl- replicable and using the the accurate methods and all of that, then we can agree on its results. But postmodernism says no, you never can. Okay, number two, existing binaries like sex are to be alighted into like should be regarded as continua, right? So. There, there's no, there's there, you can't have male or female. There's always, there's all these, these many steps along the way. This is what we're, we're supposed to see. And the more marginalized and freakish the group, the more the voice should be amplified no matter how small a number. And that's what we're seeing, right? Third, diversity, inclusion, race, equity become the new religion that silences all heretics. And we'll get to a little bit more on that later. Actually, I posted in the chat um, about Mary Harrington's new book, Feminists Against Progress, and she talks about how um, how middle class educated women are part of the new clerisy, the new clergy, the high priestesses, the, the the inquisitors who are maintaining and promulgating the trans agenda. It's not just the men, it's women who are complicit. Personal anecdotes of lived experience, fictitious stories, and narratives are perceived not simply as equivalent to, but more valid than logic, statistics, and a scientific collection of data. This is where we are, and this is this is where universities are right now. Okay. Now, 1990, we had Judith Butler write gender trouble. And she wrote, there is no ma- female or male biological reality. And we're seeing this quite a bit. Um, all these people who are saying um, uh, they they refuse to acknowledge the scientific fact of biological sex. She made the case for acceptance and normalization. And once again, um, in in the university, anything that's new, people grab onto because you have to continually prove your relevance in in higher education. And how do you do that? By gripping onto the new, and especially in um, the social sciences and English, because science, hard sciences like physics chemistry, biology, they were making all these new, um, new discoveries. And so the other folks weren't and they got jealous and they wanted to have, have also have the new, right? So there's this neophilia stuff going on. So anything that's novel, theoretical and emotional um, took the place of reality. Um, And that helps us to understand why people assert gender as as the same people who assert gender as merely a social construct physically alter their bodies. Doesn't otherwise fit, right? If it's a social construct, why are you replacing your healthy tissues and organs? Okay, now here's the problem. Women's studies adopted this framework. And when you have a flawed, unfounded, um mm, foundational knowledge base what happens you're going to build faulty structures on top of that you can't if you have to have a solid foundation to build something solid on top when i used to teach women's studies i absolutely taught the use of the term gender to theoretically differentiate between biological reality of sex and the socially constructed norms behaviors and roles we regarded it as theory and we taught it as theory and somehow not somehow we know how it has become reified right so now it's it has become not a theory anymore but something that is like gravity like a law that that gender can is different from sex and that we it can be changed and but these people are trying to change their sex so something doesn't fit here. Okay. Um, it, so it quickly undermined female biological reality. Now, here's where I'm coming from. In 1979, Janice Raymond wrote, and this is also available in full PDF for free on the internet, the transsexual empire, the making of the she-male. She was a woman's studies professor. In those days, we generally agreed that the attempt of males to appropriate the female sex was inimical to feminism and reinforced gender stereotypes, like these these uh, men pretending to be females that I see down here in Miami all the time. They have they, they have huge uh, breasts. They wear as little clothing as possible as they rollerblade down Collins Avenue in Miami and South Beach. Um, it's, it's absolutely reinforcing, buttressing these gender stereotypes. I keep telling people be as gender non-conforming as you like, but do not claim to be the other sex. And this, this quote is a strong quote, but I love it. I, I wish that everyone would take a screenshot of it because it's important. All transsexuals rape women's bodies by reducing the real female form to an artifact. Appropriating this body for themselves. The transsexually constructed lesbian feminist violates women's sexuality and spirit. Rape, though it is usually done by force, can also be accomplished by deception. She revealed, Janice Raymond revealed that this phenomenon resulted in part not only from psychiatric disturbance, but from medicine and psychology serving as secular religions replacing uh, and the medical empire and we know big pharma we know how powerful big pharma is we know that they stand to benefit tremendously we know pritzker is one of the billionaires behind all the cui bono who follow the money and who benefits the most big pharma big medicine they replace morality and ethics with technical ability. This is, this is Frankenstein all over again. Reread Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. If you haven't read it in a while, I highly recommend doing so. And you're just going to see, oh my God, this is exactly what we're doing. And so now, less than two decades after its founding, women's studies was conjoined with gender studies, university programs with gender in the title, outnumber women's studies programs five to one. And in the United States in 2018, the National Women's Studies Association said this, statement against the redefinition of sex as an association focused on the intersectional study of sex and gender, we reject the notion that sex is immutable, biologically determined binary. Ah, oh. in direct contrast with lived experiences, erroneously defining sex through violent colonial medical and social constructions of gender. Okay, so what we have here is the once promising field of women's studies. We could have done so much if we stuck to the empirical. Now it's gender ideology. Postmodernism displaced reality and empiricism and infected academia with emotional appeals to accept and normalize the most outlandish and rightfully marginalized in the name of diversity and inclusion. And then, like I said, the virus escaped from the ivory tower and has now infected the broader society. And this is how you can get in in, um, touch with me. That's it.